Hello and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 145th episode, a returning guest is Jason Stanley. You first heard Jason Stanley on episode 122 of the podcast. Jason Stanley is the Jacob Garoski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Before coming to Yale in 2013, he was Distinguished Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. Stanley is the author of Know How, Languages in Context, and Knowledge and Practical Interests, which won the 2007 American Philosophical Association Book Prize, and How Propaganda Works, which won the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy from the Association of American Publishers. His first book, Knowledge and Practical Interests, won the American Philosophical Association Book Prize, awarded to one philosopher every year for 2005 to 2006. He is a frequent contributor for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Review, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among other publications. Stanley lives in New Haven, Connecticut with his family. His new book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, was released on September 4, 2018. You can read his latest article is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Fascism Claim to Extreme in the New York Times, which was published on July 4th. And now on to the show. Congratulations on the piece, first of all. It was really good. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit first about your... Um, your family's background because i don't think we got to actually discuss that last time but that is uh you know it is related to all this and uh you know in, in terms of, of refugees and if you could just talk a little bit about your your family's background in that respect yeah so uh so my father uh was born and raised in berlin in the 1930s he was born in november 19th 1932 uh and he uh the child uh the grandchild of one of uh, the of one of the leading members of Berlin's Jewish uh, religious leadership. His grandfather was the cantor of the largest synagogue uh, in Germany, uh, with lar- the synagogue with the largest congregation in Germany. Uh, he was uh, he came to the United States when he was six and a half or almost seven uh, in the summer of 1939. He left Germany in July 1939, so just at the right moment. Uh, my mother is Polish Jewish. Uh, she was uh, she was born uh, as her parents uh, uh, were taken into slave labor in Siberia. Uh, she spent the first five years of her life in uh, in Poland in in slave labor in Siberia. She was uh, sent back to, to Warsaw on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Uh, on the way, uh, by happenstance, they ran into her father. She had never met her father. She was five. Uh, when they returned to, to Warsaw, uh, there were no family members remaining. My mm. great-grandmother had eight children, uh, seven of whom were murdered by the Germans. One of them was killed in front of her, and she herself was gassed at Sobibor. Um, mm. So I come from a family of refugees and a family of survivors. Yeah. I'll say. And, you know, that's got to color, you know, how you perceive what's going on now. Uh, you know, we, we talk about, you know, well, I, I guess we just get to it. You know, I, I was uh, struck when AOC talked about these uh, camps at the border as, as concentration camps. 
And uh, I saw I said that a long time ago, and I actually lost some friends over it. Uh, they were they were offended that I would use such such loaded terminology. Um, but you know, if you look at you know the dictionary definition of of the camps, it it is a concentration camp. If you just look at the straight definition of it. So, what was your take, I guess, first of all, on AOC's invocation of that? Because that is you know that's that's a heavy word to bring into it. But well, it's a just you don't need to look at dictionaries. You just need to look at history. Sure. Uh, my my grandmother was uh, a hero of the Holocaust. She went into Sachsenhausen the German concentration camp, dozens and dozens of times. She ended up rescuing hundreds of people from Sachsenhausen over two years. Uh, and Sachsenhausen from 1936 to 1938 was not a death camp. It was a place where communists, socialists, trade unionists, Jewish citizens, uh, anyone who is regarded as an enemy of the state was brought to be tortured and sometimes killed, uh, but it was not a death camp. Uh, it was a labor camp, it was a camp of forced brutality. Uh, and uh, my grandmother dressed as a Nazi social worker and uh, with forged free passes, took people out of, the, of these camps and wrote a memoir about it. And that memoir is very revealing. Uh, it talks about how Sachsenhausen was completely sealed from public view. No one had any sense of what was happening in Sachsenhausen other than the reports that they would get from the few who returned. Uh, but in Kristallnacht, uh, November 8th, 9th, 1938, uh, after Kristallnacht, uh, the Nazis arrested 30,000 Jewish men and sent them to concentration camps where they were tortured. Uh, and then they were soon released because the idea was to urge German Jews to self-deport. And that's how we're using the camps right now in the United States. We're using the camps as a mechanism of brutality. Uh, we're using the criminal justice system as a mechanism of brutality and fear to force uh, undocumented citizens, un undocumented residents uh, to self-deport uh, by exposing them to this misery. You don't have death camps until 1941 and after. Uh, so. People think of Auschwitz as a paradigmatic concentration camp, but that's actually not true. Auschwitz was a death camp or had a death camp attached to it. And death camps are additions to concentration camps. Uh, so uh, these are concentration camps. They're being used in the exact same way or in very, not, in very similar ways, maybe not exact same way, but very similar ways to the ways the Germans used concentration camps in 1930s in the 1930s as a way, as, as places hidden from view uh, that are ways to get people, a certain group, to self-deport, namely enemies of the state, communists, socialists in the case of Germany, and ethnic minorities, like, or religious minorities in the case of Germany, Jews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought uh, Adam Sreur in the, I think the Atlantic had a really good article that I always go back to that was the, the cruelty is the point. That's the, where all yeah. the people are like, oh, why is this so mean? It's like, yeah, it's supposed to be mean. That's the point. That's, 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 that's why they're doing this. And, and it's twofold. The point of the cruelty is twofold. It's, it's, it's to make the, well, the overarching point is to make cruelty a feature of America, to make People identify America with cruelty. Uh, so that's supposed to drive people away. 
And then it's supposed to appeal to an anti-democratic base who's motivated by a fascist ideology of us versus them and power. A fascist and fascist ideology, you draw the difference between us versus them by, by representing us as, uh, as encroached on from all sides, under threat, and in need of a cruel, powerful leader who will protect us at all costs from the foreigners. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you know, one line in your piece that I did really appreciate was uh, liberal democracy organizes society around respect for dignity, equality and freedom of all human beings. Fascism, by contrast, organizes society around the vilification of outsiders. And I do mean, that's really key to me to understanding Trumpism as a whole. And I've heard that described elsewhere as negative partisanship. It's not even about what you organize around. It's like who you organize against. And that's what brings you together. It's really dark. Yeah, so. negative, negative partisanship is a sort of like, that's right, but it's an overly sort of like political science-y way to describe Carl Schmitt's political philosophy, uh, political mm-hmm. existentialism. This goes to the very heart of the nature of fascism. Fascism defines itself, the, the, the political community is defined negatively in terms of its enemies. And that's what, that's what Carl Schmitt, the Nazi political theorist, held. He said, you don't have a political community unless you choose foreigners, enemies, to define yourself against. They help define you. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing Americans defined as against Islam. We're seeing Americans defined as against uh, non-white immigration. Uh, so, and this is a very classic, uh, you know, it's classic fascist ideology. Mm-hmm. And I know you talked about this in, in your book, but you know, the this kind of stuff is is it's 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 extreme. It's it's in our faces a lot more now, but. There has been elements of this, you know, fascist ideology and even concentration camps in America. You know, we had during you know, World War Two, you know, you look at the Japanese uh, camps, uh, internment camps, and there weren't German camps, you know, but uh, that's right. another issue. But, uh, you, you know, and, and Native Americans and, and black people and you just go down the line and it, it, this has been a feature of uh, American. But but I mean, this is something new. Is that the way you, you see it, too? Well, uh, well, I see it as I argue in my book, How Fascism Works. This is, we've always struggled, and I repeat again in this piece, we've mm-hmm. always struggled in the United States against our dueling liberal, liberal democratic and fascist natures. I mean, as I also cite in, in the piece and discuss extensively in my book, How Fascism Works, mm-hmm. Hitler is deeply affected by the history of the United States. In Hitler's second book, he talks about how uh, the U.S. genocide of its indigenous people influences him. He says, who anymore speaks of the Red Indian? Uh, that influences his policy in Ukraine, where he seeks to massacre everyone, keeping only some for enslave, enslavement on large German plantations. Um, our history, I mean, we are the country that incarcerates, uh, at ver- has the largest prison population, I mean, at this point, the Uyghur Muslim population in China that is in prison camps probably uh, makes China the leader. But 25% of the world, until recently, at least 25% of the world's prisoners were in U.S. prisons. So we have a recent racially based uh, uh, ideology uh, of imprisonment and incarceration. 
we have a lengthy uh, we have a lengthy uh, we have a lengthy history with uh, with uh, racial segregation uh, with uh, racial hierarchy. Uh, obviously, the United States explicitly before the Civil War, but also afterwards, is based on racial ideology uh, to a large extent. Of course, we fought against that. We have a long history of fighting against that as well. Um, so, so yes, this is uh, this is clearly in our history. Uh, the if you read a book like Bradley Hart's Hitler's American Friends, you see a very familiar group of characters. You see the religious right. Um, you see uh, the business people uh, because fascist ideology, like if you look at, at, at these camps, like the way they're, they're benefiting our economy, they're benefiting their, their help. Wall Street is making large investments uh, in, in, in these, in these uh, camps. Uh, county jails are profiting from uh, imprisoning ICE, ICE uh, detainees. So when it starts getting mixed into your economy, um, which the prison industrial system has been for for many decades, uh, you really have to be worried about moving backwards into some of the darker periods of U.S. history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was definitely going to talk about that for sure. And I've actually had Bradley Hart on the show, and yeah, I did uh, discuss that with him as well. But yeah, there is there is a lot of similarities. Um, one thing, and, though, and, that... And, yeah, and the U.S., US if, if you look at the history of fascism, if you look at Germany, it's the religious right, the business people uh, getting together and saying, hey, the, the, we can appeal to ethnic nationalism and fear of outsiders to gain support. So it's a familiar coalition that we have here on the far right, in, in, in unfortunately the Republican Party that is, that is also playing to form and signing up behind uh, some of these anti-democratic uh, uh, measures that, you know, you could go to European fascism, but you could also go to our own history and Jim Crow laws. I mean, we're finding voter suppression, gerrymandering, completely anti-democratic measures pushed by one political party. Mm -hmm. I guess one way that you know, the other side of this uh, issue could inoculate themselves from some of these charges is it's, you know, not a carbon copy, obviously. And, you know, the Republican Party does seem to have a pretty strong uh, feeling about Israel, while at the same time courting anti-Semitism. Uh, what do you make of that? Right. So that is very confusing to Americans and needs unpacking. Um, so Hitler's anti-Semitism was not hatred of Israel. Israel didn't exist. <laughs> so Nazi anti-Semitism is not hatred of Israel. Nazi anti-Semitism is as follows. And tell me if this sounds familiar. The idea is there's a cabal of leftists, of communists and socialists who control the media, the universities, the banks, uh, the, uh, the, the press, and they're using these institutions to push a socialist, anti-nationalist, globalist agenda. And who are those people? They're the Jews. That's not and and they're and and the trade unions. They're the behind the trade the labor unions. They're behind the uh, the the press, the mainstream media. They're behind the theater, the media, the intellectual outlets, the art world. These are 
the la- and they're doing it all to push a socialist communist agenda. And they're behind bringing in immigrants to destroy the native society. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why the Pittsburgh shooter uh, uh, killer massacred the people in Squirrel Hill because because of the Hebrew immigrant aid society because he thought Jews are behind lax immigration laws. So what you have here is you have every bit of that Nazi anti-Semitic ideology, except identifying the people behind it as the Jews. Mm-hmm. So now, now right. Israel plays in a very complex way into this. Herzl, the founder of Zionism, one of his goals was to have a nation for Jewish people so Jewish people would no longer be identified as globalists with no nation who go around everywhere trying to destroy national character. His idea was to create a nation for Jews so Jewish people could be nationalists too. That was one of his ideas, although he had a much more democratic vision of Israel than we see now with Netanyahu. So Israel is controlled by ethno-nationalists who share the ideology that uh, that every group should, they want America to be a Christian nation. If America is a Christian nation, Israel can be a Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. And those of us, those of, uh, those of us who are Jews in the diaspora, who count ourselves as patriotic Americans, we feel we are just as much American as we are Jewish. And so mm-hmm. we're Jewish Americans. And we're not, it's when, when the president of the United States addresses Jewish American audiences and talks about your prime minister, Netanyahu, uh, He's being anti-Semitic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, wow, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. It just kind of makes my head spin, because uh, also it seems like a lot of fundamentalist Christians support Israel, I guess, because they want, uh, what, all the, there's something in Revelations where you're supposed to get all the, the Jews to Israel, and then you're supposed to convert them to Christianity before the apocalypse or something well, like it, that, isn't it? It's, it? it's also the case that Hitler supported sending all Jews to the same country. That wasn't Germany, you know, before the final solution. Anti-Semitism always says, you always find, uh, so Brendan Tarrant, the, the killer of the 50 people in a mosque in, uh, in New Zealand, Brendan Tarrant said, I'm fine with Jews as long as they're in Israel. So it's part of this ideology. So the fundamentalist Christians here think of America as a Christian state. So of course they want we, Americans to self-deport to, you know, it, you know, they think of it, we should be living in Israel. Uh, that's, that's part of it. Part of it is the idea that countries should have religious identities. And, uh, and so uh, the, the idea that Jews should live in Israel, that is an anti-Semitic idea. <laughs> it's an anti-liberal idea, you know, whereas those of us in the protocols of the elders of Zion, Jews are supposed to be behind the idea of liberalism because they're spreading the idea that one society can have a diversity of ethnicities and religion and religions. Mm-hmm. So what, what you find in the fundamentalist Christian community here is familiar anti-Semitic tropes. Jews should go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, going back to your piece, and you mentioned uh, ICE a little bit, uh, it's it's interesting that, you know, the when, when this is discussed now, and, you know, we're talking about abolish ICE, and people say that, and people take such offense to that, like it's this long-held tradition, but ICE, it was only formed after 9-11, right? It's not that old, so. It was formed in 2003. Before that, right. we had immigration, naturalization, naturalization 
service. But what we had with ICE, we, we, it was the Department of Homeland Security Act that reorganized uh, the government to create. I mean, I do not believe a liberal democracy should have a, a, a bureau called Homeland Security. Homeland is some word out of out of national ultra nationalist tradition. Mm-hmm. America, yeah, that, yeah. country of immigrants, right. uh, and uh, you know, like our president's uh, father was an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, so the United States homeland security. Uh, you, you have you have the uh, Customs and Border Patrol and ICE, who are created in 2003, and uh, they're related to organizations that came before them, but they have a new mandate and a new mission. And ICE, ICE's mandate is internal immigration. So they're supposed to go after people who've overstayed their visas, uh, uh, people who've lived in the United States. Uh, to, uh, they're not at the border, they're inside the United States. So this is like a secret police in our cities, not at the border, not protecting our border, but targeting uh, our fellow residents who are come from who uh, who are have lived here for for many years and have families and jobs. Uh, now, uh, so ICE was created in the wake of 9/11 in this terrifying anti-democratic moment, and there's no reason that we can't look, but which of course paved the way for now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, 9/11, the horrors of 9/11. Uh, paved the way for uh, 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 an anti-Muslim uh, uh, na- national movement, uh, and ICE ICE is a an internal security force uh, that is that is designed to essentially hunt uh, undocumented residents uh, to uh, to marginalize them uh, and uh, ultimately deport them. And that is uh, quite novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and very scary. And, you know, I was, I'm also reading Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny, which is just a fun summer read. But uh, I stopped in my tracks when he talked about these extrajudicial extremist groups mixing with uh, law enforcement. And then, you know, we see the secret Facebook group that ICE has. And you just got these people in authority mixing with radicals. And it's just super dangerous. So, so that... To- so that, that- Secret Facebook group was uh, CBP. The, oh, sorry. Uh, okay, two control. different things. It's, right. Well, but highly related. CBP right. and ICE are two sides of the same coin. CBP is the border version of ICE, which is the internal security version. But what those that Facebook group re- revealed, which is thousands and thousands of members of CBP, uh, is uh, is uh, the Border Patrol is. Uh, is it revealed that we've got extreme fascist, racist, and sexist? Racism and sexism are characteristic of fascist ideology. We have uh, CBP is laced through with uh, with people who have no business uh, doing that job, uh, who are not uh, who are who are who are racist, dehumanizing. Uh, and they have no business protecting our borders and representing the United States of America, which is a great liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, and once it gets to this point, too, you got to think of who that place attracts. 
and that's going to attract more of the same type of person the more this goes on so it's like a self-perpetuating cycle you know the more it advertises itself this way or it just becomes that way it's, it's right really, yeah so, so, right so so that's the problem with with uh institutions like cvp and ice is that the way they are represented you know we go after family members and babies and children and we arrest their parents in front of them and we engage in naked cruelty and that's macho and cool and that's us. Uh, who's that going to attract? It's going to mm. change the culture. And as in the case of Nazi Germany, as in the case of Nazi in Germany, who is standing up to ICE? It's the police. <laughs> I mean, p many police, w what you have in these transitions from democratic moments to fascist moment fascist moments is you have institutions democ democratic institutions like take say, say the police the police are supposed to keep communities safe but ice's tactics run contrary to that kamala harris talked about this in the first debate uh what ice does is its raids send immigrants into hiding and since they go into hiding they're afraid to report crimes and of course once they are in hiding, uh, they're in desperation. So they have to resort to crime in order to, to feed themselves and clothe themselves. Uh, they're often not paid by their employers. That's becoming increasingly a problem. Uh, employers, because they have no recourse, they have no place to go uh, because they're in fear. And the police, the job of the police is to keep communities safe. And when you have uh, large portions of the community in hiding, uh, well, that's not good for your economy because those members of the community are not buying things and out in shops. It's not good for the streets because many streets are are more deserted. Uh, and it's not good for safety because people are afraid to report crimes. So you have the culture of the police being changed. And this happened. My grandmother in her memoir of Nazi Germany talks about Kostalnop when uh, she goes up to a police officer during the burning of the synagogue. Uh, at which her father worked, and they were forcing an employee to run over broken glass barefoot. And she got the police officer to arrest the employee to make him safe from, from the SA and the Gestapo. Mm. Uh, so what we have now, what, what's concerning is when those institutions like the police start themselves changing, working with, with, with non-democratic institutions like ICE and changing their mission. And that's what we really need to pay attention to now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just saw that CBP has their own youth wing now. I, gee, when, where have I seen that before? You know, <laughs> like, right. very dangerous <laughs> to instill anti-democratic ideologies in young people, uh, uh, yeah. us versus them mentality. At the center of li liberal democracy is a respect for the dignity of all human beings. Uh, it's a tricky thing drawing a distinction between uh, you know, be you know, fitting nation, fitting countries into liberal democracy because all human beings are deserving of respect. But you have to treat even uh, undocumented immigrants seeking to cross our borders against the law. You have to treat them like you treat human beings uh, with equal respect, or else you're sacrificing the nature uh, of uh, the, the frankly Christian nature that underlies liberal democracy. Yeah, 
Well, and it's just been amazing to see the Christ, quote unquote Christians just be okay with these tactics. I, the, I don't know for why, the, but yeah. The white Christian. Oh, sorry. Yeah, white. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think important. you find many black Christians True. Uh, uh, going in accord with this. And so you can see when you talk about white evangelicals, it's the white part. And history mm. again tells us Bradley Hart in his book has a whole chapter called The Religious Right about how it was the religious right leading the pro-fascist, pro-Hitler uh, uh, movement in the United States. Father Coughlin and others, uh, Gerald Smith, these were the anti-Semites, the anti-immigrant forces. So this is familiar, the white Christian, uh, white Christian populations uh, basically aligning with their whiteness rather than Jesus's teachings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that I was struck by in the 2016 vote, and I wanted to get your perspective on this, too. Uh, Trump got almost 30 percent of the Hispanic vote, which was astonishing to me, which is still not a lot, but it's more than I would have thought. Um, be interested to see how that changes next time. Is, is there a sense among immigrants that are already here that they want to, like, I, I don't know, like like they want to be more conservative or no one come in behind me or, or they want to be in with whoever's in power now? What, what do you make of that? Well, look at look at the it, it's all cynical bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in your show, you but, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's all cynical uh, because, uh, you know, Sebastian Gorka, the administration's fascist Hungarian, he came here in 2008. I mean, m our first lady is an immigrant. I mean, you know, it's all it's all just a method to get votes from uh, a particularly toxic uh, for, for it to, to sort of uh, uh, ideology. Uh, it's very, so you can take well-meaning, decent people and twist them with fear about foreign invasion. And uh, as far as the 2016 vote, well, I would like to see how that broke down between white Hispanic voters and mm -hmm. non-white Hispanic voters, because I think mm -hmm. the appeal that's being made is to whiteness. Mm -hmm. uh, so... We don't divide that with um, our our uh, our South and Central American immigrant populations, but we should to gain greater greater clarity. I mean, for instance, I don't know, 100% of Orthodox Jews voted for Trump, but uh, very few uh, Reform or conservative Jews voted for Trump. 73% of American Jews, I think, voted against Trump, but a very loud vocal minority voted for Trump. So. You have something similar with immigrant communities. I can explain to you the difference, what's happening with the Jewish vote uh, better than I can. Uh, it, it aligns uh, mostly around Orthodox versus non-Orthodox. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit, because I do think that that is interesting. And I, I do feel like they kind of jumped on. Uh, you know, well, they're like, oh, well, the left has has Farrakhan and he's anti-Semitic. So you want to you want to get with us. We're, we're not the ones they, they tell us that, you know, so I feel like they're using the tropes of the other side to, like, try to draw people away. Yeah, explain that a little is, bit. What's yeah. that Louis Farrakhan left wing? He's right wing. He's a ultra-nationalist. <laughs> he's a homophobe. He's a sexist. And he's an anti-Semite. <laughs> yeah. He, Anti-communist. Uh, he's completely right wing. True. That's <laughs> so a good point. <laughs> he's being associated with the left wing. There's no such thing as a left wing, homophobic, anti feminist, anti Semite. That's a good uh, point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
um, the uh, so yeah, Farrakhan is a right wing, is right. a far right wing figure. Um, so uh, so uh, I think um, what, one thing I want to talk about is something. It, there's a very complex politics happening right now among the uh, among uh, uh, Jewish Americans. Um, so the the complex politics is um, the complex politics uh, is uh, you the, the vast majority of Jewish Americans are against us because we were raised in households that warned us about the initial stages of fascism. We know many of us know what it's like. Certainly, I do <laughs> to come from a community that is gradually isolated from the rest of the community uh, via this toxic, poisonous rhetoric of being a fifth column, being not really American, having really divided loyalties. Uh, and you see those tropes being directed at Muslims today, destroying the dominant culture. Uh, Tucker Carlson's rant against, uh, Tucker Carlson's rant against, uh, 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 Ilan Omar was a classic anti-Semitic rant. If you go back to Father Coughlin, if you go back to Gerald Smith, if you go back to the anti-Semitic rants, the Silver League of the 1930s, what do they say about Jews? They say they said Jewish immigrants were pushing a leftist agenda to destroy America, uh, a socialist, the socialist communist agenda to destroy America. Tucker Carlson said exactly that, except about. Ilan Omar and Muslim immigration. So, uh, so uh, the U.S. One very disturbing thing that happened. My my piece for the New York, like one very disturbing thing that happened recently was the U.S. Holocaust Museum announced that had did a press release decrying all analogies between uh, between the Nazi time and now, saying that. Their position was that you could draw no analogies whatsoever. Mm. This was terrifying to me. Not terrifying, just like very disappointing. Uh, the U.S. Holocaust Museum is a federally funded institution on the mall. What is its purpose? Its purpose is to educate. If we can learn nothing from the Holocaust, why should Americans, which, it, which be paying for a Holocaust museum? The point of the Holocaust Museum is that it should educate us. It should help us understand uh, what led to the Holocaust. Uh, and it should help us uh, pay attention to the fact that these are things that could happen again. What does it mean to say that there's no analogy between the Holocaust and anything else? I mean, an analogy is, analogies are always imperfect. There's gonna be no perfect analogy. Uh, no, people here are not speaking German. No, it, you know, you don't have s someone who has a mustache. Yeah, there's disanalogies. <laughs> um, right. You know, there's di but but an analogy is something that's uh, that's, you know, w for, for those of us who lost so many family members in the Holocaust to tell us essentially that the Holocaust was meaningless, which is what the U.S. Holocaust Museum announced. They announced the Holocaust has no meaning. You know. It cannot, it cannot give us any lesson from the past. And that's to make my family's sacrifices and losses meaningless. Right. So 
it was very deeply disturbing for me for the and for many of us who lost family members i mean i lost my whole family in the holocaust it was uh an extraordinary uh uh disappointing announcement and thank goodness that the vast majority of Holocaust uh, uh, scholars and historians signed a petition uh, denouncing that press release and asking the U.S. Holocaust Museum to to take it back. Yeah, yeah, that is super disturbing. Yeah, my friend Jonathan has a line about things like that. He's like, to some people, uh, never again just means never again will Jews in the 1930s be persecuted. <laughs> but it's like you have to you have to like draw draw some analogies here. Take you know, it's not perfect, like you said, it's not not a carbon copy. But come on, like there's a there's a playbook here and. You know, I, I, I get into arguments with my friends when I make these analogies and I, you know, I, I say, look, let's learn from history. And they're like, no, you're going to turn people off and you're going to be like, what, you're calling me a Nazi? And it's like, no, just like think like, like expand the scope a little bit and just look at like the steps. They're the same. They're not exactly the same, but they're kind of the same. So. Right. We're talking about the early 30s in, in, in Germany and there are disanalogies. We haven't had an enabling act, but we have a Republican Party that seems awfully interested in controlling all levers of power and making sure that democracy will never destabilize their grip on power. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, and that the some pre-court gerrymandering case was so upsetting in that way too, but absolutely. Uh, yeah. But, um, anyway, on a lighter note, uh, how, how have you been feeling about the 2020 democratic candidates? Who do you think, uh, recognizes what we're up against and who do you think has the best chance of winning? So, well, I try not to talk about that sort of thing because it's beyond my my uh, okay. <laughs> academic. Um, you know, I'm someone who is a scholar of the ideology. Uh, I've been working on the ideology of fascism and uh, and looking historically at similar moments. Um, as a private citizen, I have views about the Democratic primary. Uh, I mean, I, I have... Uh, uh, and, and I guess some of these I've been working on academically, like I'm, I'm, I, I hope we're not going to fall back. People talk about one of the things I've been thinking about lately, um, historically and philosophically is the use of the term populism to describe someone like Trump. Uh, I find that very disturbing because Trump to me is a, uh, ultra an ethno-nationalist, a nativist a neo-fascist, uh, so those are appropriate terms to use for him. Uh, populism, uh, well, populism is a uh, uh, certain view about the elite. And I think that the elite are problematic. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, elite institutions have been problematic and, and, uh, and a critique of the role of, uh, say, the financial industry uh, in, uh, in economic inequality is is long past needed. So so we can't. And the problem is, if you call if you call Trump a populist, you're suggesting that those who have legitimate critiques of, you know, the kind of Cl Clinton uh, Obama politics that got us to a situation where economic e inequality is so large, uh, if you call then you know you're marginalizing the kind of solution we need, which is to uh, to bring some kind of economic hope to uh, to places that need it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, yeah, what are you working on next, though, for a book or whatever else? Uh, my next book is, uh, which I'm trying to finish up this summer, is with uh, the cognitive scientist David and linguist David Beaver. It's called uh, Hustle, the Politics of Language. And what we're looking at is the way in which uh, rhetoric over time changes and normalizes things. So how is it that... Uh, that we can just become over time, certain ways of talking about populations become normal. So we become used to ways of talking about undocumented residents as illegal aliens, as criminals and rapists and uh, snakes. Uh, we're used to it. And so this new book talks about is, is a scientific investigation into how rhetoric changes what we regard as acceptable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point. It's very subtle with that kind of thing, too. People don't even realize it's happening. And then these words and phrases just get injected into our speech. And then we don't even think about how we're perpetuating that kind that's of stuff. That's right. So, so un under, under, under National Socialism, anyone who wrote about National Socialism focused on the language. What we have now, and, and post-1945, denazification took the form of changing the language. Any German, anyone who grew up in Germany, and I spent years in Germany in the 1980s in school, can recognize what Nazi's language sounds like. Um, we have to, you know, we have to have a kind of sensitivity to the kind of language that leaves us susceptible to the anti-democratic demagogues that we're now seeing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we have a lot of ordinary ways of talking, American exceptionalism, talking about as America is this, you know, uh, uh, you know, the language of American exceptionalism is very dangerous, I think. It's anti-democratic, the language of, of leadership, uh, of power and strength. These are, these are words that, would, that any German learns to be suspicious of. Um, but we, but it's baked into our national vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know I asked you this last time for the kind of final question, but what music are you listening to lately? Uh, music. Uh, I always just listen to early '90s rap. <laughs> nice, me too. <laughs> yeah, seems like you know, uh, Ice Cube. And, uh, sure. It, it's never not relevant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well hey uh thank you so much for coming back i appreciate it and i'll be looking forward to whatever you do next for sure so thank you so much great to be on the show cool thanks have a good day you too okay bye-bye